The U.S. government, the Pentagon, and the government it created in South Korea after World War II established a system of mass sex trafficking and sexual slavery that ensnared thousands, perhaps tens of thousands, of women in South Korea. The victims, the women, the survivors are now fighting back even as South Korea continues to be occupied by tens of thousands of U.S. troops. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. If you enjoy this show or rely on this show or both, show your support by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program and becoming a patron. Today, we're talking with journalist and scholar K.J. No. K.J. is a peace activist also. He's an organizer with the organization Pivot to Peace. He's a frequent contributor to Counterpunch and Dissident Voice. K.J. No, welcome back. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. KJ, you know, this article in the New York Times that really jumped out at anyone who could possibly have taken a look at it, very dramatic and in a way seemingly novel because it's about a system that existed for decades, but the U.S. media has never covered it at all that I can tell, the mainstream media. So it seemed like a bombshell, like a revelation Tens of thousands of women basically conscripted as sex slaves, not by the Japanese government, which we know all too well about during World War II in the era of colonial domination of all of Korea by Japan. But this was the Pentagon. This was the U.S. military and the government it created, a puppet military dictatorship in South Korea after World War II. Okay, seemed like a revelation, but I'm reading your articles from Counterpunch. You wrote about the same story in 2015, so it's not a secret. Obviously, the people in Korea know about it. One, why no coverage before, and why is this story coming to the New York Times in such a prominent way now? Well, Brian, you know, we know that militaries are violent. And the reason why this story has been covered so much is that it undermines two foundational myths. One is that the U.S. is a beneficial presence in other countries. And secondly, it undermines the story of South Korea's development itself. What I mean by that is, as I said, militaries are violent. They're violent institutions and foreign militaries, that is to say, imperial militaries are even more violent. They're violent and misogynistic. They're built on misogyny, on hatred of women. And when the U.S. established itself in Korea, or rather when the U.S. first came to Korea, it came with, you know, just this tremendous metaphor of sexual conquest. When the U.S. first colonized South Korea, and this was started in 1882, it was shot through 
with this metaphor of sexual conquest and sexual in, entitlement. You know, Commodore Schufeld, who signed the agreement with Korea in 1882, said that the Pacific is the ocean bride of America. Korea is the bridesmaid on this ocean. The East and West have come together, reaching the point where empire ceases and human power attains its climax. And then he talked about a nuptial couch where the wealth of the Orient will be brought to celebrate as the bridegroom cometh. And so all of this has been incredibly shot through with this metaphor of sexual conquest. And it really has been since the late 19th century, you know, a kind of master-slave relationship, similar to this notion of a plantation master having access to the bodies of his slaves. And so this kind of international droit de seigneur, you know, this master-slave relationship then was translated into the specific military occupation. And what they did was originally South Korea or Korea itself was colonized by Japan. And when it was colonized by Japan, the Japanese drafted about 4 million Koreans into slave labor to build its industrial machine, but they also trafficked hundreds of thousands of Korean women into sexual slavery for their frontline troops. This is what we refer to euphemistically as the comfort women system. And it was essentially Japanese military bureaucratic rationalization of gang rape, military gang rape administered to 20 to 50 times a day. And, you know, uh, only one out of four of these women would survive. When the Japanese left, the South Korean puppet government that was placed in by the United States continued the practices because they had been Japanese collaborators. And so then the South Koreans started to provide comfort women for U.S. troops. And so they would take, you know, starving war orphans, war widows, former comfort women, kidnapped North Korean nurses and the spouses of political prisoners. And then they would use them for these new comfort brigades. And at the time, the U.S. labeled them class five military supplies. That is, these are humans that were shipped in like cold beers. And, you know, they would shuffle in you know, half-ton trucks with, you know, starving, pathetic women, and then administer them as treats and rewards and perks to occupying U.S. troops. If you read the Stars and Stripes in the 1970s, you know, there's an advertisement which says, picture having three or four of the loveliest creatures God ever created hovering around you, singing, dancing, feeding you, saying, you are the greatest, this is the Orient you heard about and came to find. But in a more prosaic level, you know, I think the troops used to refer to them as a cheap yellow F-U-C-K-I-N-G machines. And essentially, the South Korean government became one big pimp for the U.S. military. And we estimate that in the 1960, about 20 to 25 percent of the country's foreign revenue was garnished through prostitution. 
Over a million would serve as prostitutes for U.S. troops. And it became a core part of South Korea's developmental economy. That is to say, there's a myth that says that South Korea developed because they worked hard and they planned well and they, you know, implemented capitalism in this very skillful fashion. That's completely untrue. South Korea is an economic basket case and it was poorer than North Korea until 1978. But one of the ways in which built capital and developed their economy was through mass prostitution. And the South Korean Ministry for Women and Gender estimates somewhere in the range of one out of five women between the ages of 16 and 29 were actually prostituted. So it breaks down all the myths that we have about South Korea's development, its you know, kind of economic legitimacy, and it also lays naked that colonial relationship that, you know, is exemplified by, you know, its most brutal aspect. That is to say, this sexual entitlement and this sexual colonization of women. And so, you know, this is why this story was covered up for decades. As you point out, you know, I wrote about this eight years ago. Tim Shorrock also wrote a very good article from which the New York Times article is mostly cribbed if I'm not mistaken, in 2018 for the nation. And so the story, the information is out there, but largely the emphasis has been to erase the story. I'm looking at that New York Times article and it, again, it's sort of passively and in that passive voice of the mainstream media basically confirms exactly what you're saying. I'll read you one paragraph. When Richard Nixon announced plans in 1969 to reduce the number of U.S. troops stationed in South Korea, the government's effort took on more urgency. The project here, what we're talking about, is this max system of sex slavery in the so-called camp towns where 10,000 women or more were basically forced into prostitution. That project took on more urgency when the U.S. said it was going to reduce its footprint in 1969, the following year, the government reported to parliament, that's the South Korean government, that South Korea was earning $160 million annually through the, quote, business resulting from the U.S. military presence. And the country's total exports at that time were $835 million. So U.S. occupation forces, it wasn't only the sex trade, but it was largely the sex trade, accounted for one-eighth, 12, maybe 15 percent of the country's economy. I mean, that's a staggering number. And it's with all of this intentionality by the South Korean government. And by the way, people think capitalism equals democracy, communism equals tyranny, South Korea was capitalist. It must be a democracy. There was nothing democratic about South Korea in 1969. Absolutely, yes. So this is a key thing to understand, is that this system of prostitution, of camp town prostitution, was implemented by the South Korean government. You know, the lawmakers urged the recruitment and training of prostitutes 
the Minister of the Interior, his name was Yi Song-woo at the time, he, you know, created measures for improvement in the supply of prostitutes and the recreational system for American troops. They openly debated the provision, quote, of naked women for the pleasure of foreign soldiers. And the prostitutes themselves, they were forced into these kind of schools where they were indoctrinated as dollar-earning patriots. And the minister, Min Guanxik, said they were selling their CUNTS for the nation, even as they were despised and completely outcast from society for their, you know, for their work. So around that period, the Korean government created over a hundred special tourism districts around bases. These are the camp towns. They were essentially free trade zones for the export of human bodies of sex. And they worked hand in hand with the U.S. military in order to provide clean, docile, subservient women for U.S. sexual needs. And so these women were, they were registered, they were regulated, they were licensed, they had numbered permits, and they had to display them, you know, over their heads like taxi medallions. Their genitals were routinely inspected, forcibly inspected, like you would inspect the, the brakes on a cab. And the women would be beaten or arrested if they refused these, you know, extremely invasive inspections. And then if they were found to have disease or if they didn't have their papers, they would be locked up in these kind of barbed wire surrounded prisons that they were often referred to as monkey houses. And at the time, again, in the 1960s, two thirds of South Korea's public health budget was spent on policing women's vaginas in camp towns. And so this is, you know, it's the kind of ugliness, this unseemliness of this, where, you know, these women were taught and trained how to whore in English, how to please their U.S. clients and, you know, the importance of their vaginas in the fight against communism was, you know, coincided with these incredible purgatories, these camp towns, you know, they were like purgatories of human misery and exploitation and violence. And again, you know, these impoverished, desperate, traumatized young women, you know, they were exploited to the max. But also, and this is a very interesting phenomena, is that they were often segregated along racial lines. That is to say, they were, you know, camp town prostitutes that would serve African-American troops. And then there were camp town prostitutes that would serve Caucasian troops. And so what South Korea did was they imported the Jim Crow South onto their territory into this, you know, teeming, you know, human misery. You know, it's kind of an extraordinary ground zero of intersectional oppression, if you want. That is to say, racist segregation, you know, sexual and gendered objectification, orientalized dehumanization and capitalist exploitation, all of that, you know, came together in a single place in these horrific camp towns. Karl Marx said that capitalism came into the world as a system dripping with blood and dirt from every pore. And it's part of the story of capitalism that's ignored by the apologists of capitalism, 
who argue that it's the ingenuity of the capitalist, the risk-taking bravado, the ability to pioneer and innovate, that that's what's made capitalism such a dynamic system. When you look at what happened in the Americas to the enslavement of kidnapped people, millions of kidnapped African people, the entombment of indigenous people in mines or their just straight out genocide. And then you think about the accumulation of wealth based on what happened to people in all of Africa, especially after the full colonization took place after the conference in Berlin in 1884. By 1902, 18 years later, not one inch of African territory was still under African self-governance with the exception of Ethiopia. Then you think about what happened to Korea and China, to India, not to mention other parts of the world, including the people of the Middle East. It's a system that came into existence dripping with blood and dirt from every pore. And Marx is so correct in terms of that understanding. And yet we're spoon-fed, KJ, all of these myths about capitalism and unfortunately, because the ideas of any society, as Marx also said, are the ideas of its ruling class, other class strata, including the working class, including lots of people who are absolutely not part of the bourgeoisie, sort of grab hold of bourgeois ideas and sort of are attendant to one or another narrative part of the bourgeois story. And also people don't really know how to read the newspaper, because all of these stories, including this revelation, they too are political. There's a reason the New York Times didn't cover this story for decades and now has decided to. Yes, the juncture or the conjuncture is the filing of a lawsuit by Korean survivors, these women who are still, like most of them in their 70s and 80s, who, who are survivors and they filed a court case and they won their court case in the Supreme Court in, in Korea. But the United States media didn't need this court case to know about this story. Why is the New York Times running the story now? I think that's a really, really important question. I think that the key reason has to do with the meeting between Japanese Prime Minister Kishida and Korean President Yoon Seok-yeol. Now, recall once again that you know Japan colonized South Korea Hundreds of thousands of women were drafted into sexual slavery, which was a form of institutionalized death. They had, you know, lower survival rates than frontline troops. And at the end of colonization, the South Koreans covered up this story. The Park Jang-hee administration, the successive military dictatorships, they all covered it up until the 1990s when a single woman, a former comfort woman, came forth and she told the story. And that kind of shattered, you know, the mythology of the Korean, you know, history. And it created a strong demand for reparations and apologies. And what the Japanese did was first they stonewalled and they denied it, but eventually the truth came out and more former comfort women came out and told their story. And then they were forced to issue a kind of a non-apology apology, which then was built on into a generalized demand by Korea and other countries that had been colonized and drafted into 
you know, being sex slaves. And so this became a large movement. What the Park Geun-hye government, which was, you know, again, another U.S. Quisling government, was they organized an agreement with Japan to make the comfort women issue go away. This was signed in 2015. It wasn't signed. It was agreed to in 2015 because nobody can actually find the, the documents. There, there are no written documents of this. So this was an agreement between the South Korean president at that time with the Shinzo Abe government in Japan. And Shinzo Abe's apologies were kind of like, I'm sorry? Like the words were, I'm sorry, but you could see that there was no real apology or taking responsibility. So that was then, that was in 2015? Yes. And then the Moon Jae-in administration who came in right after Park Geun-hye, they essentially canceled the agreement because the agreement was so egregious. It essentially gave the comfort women a pittance in exchange for a gag order, that they had to be silent forever about their issue and that the Koreans had to remove their comfort women statues in Korea in front of the Japanese embassy, etc. And so it was really kind of an extraordinary capitulation to the Japanese. And Moon Jae-in administration canceled it. And so now the Yoon Seok-yeol administration has come back and he has reinstated it. And this reinstatement of this agreement, which nullifies or erases the comfort women from the historical narrative, is really about establishing a relationship between South Korea and Japan and the United States as trilateral military partners in order to coordinate and create a threat projection platform against China in this current moment where the U.S. is escalating to war against China. It's encircling and escalating towards kinetic war against China. And Japan and Korea are the kind of key force projection or threat projection platforms in Northeast Asia. So they want Korea and Japan to coordinate. And the comfort women issue, along with the slave labor issue in general, was a stumbling block. So this article in the New York Times is very interesting because what it does is it adds to the comfort women issue essentially the allegation that, look, you know, we don't know what Japan did but we know that whatever Japan did, the South Koreans also did to their own people. And, you know, South Korea has no uh, moral standing to criticize Japan. That is the tacit message of this article. And I believe that is why this article was published at the current moment, just before the meeting between Kishida and Yoon. Essentially, it nullifies or it normalizes comfort women, and it also apportions blame to the South Koreans for doing something equally horrific, and it is, it was completely and totally horrific. But notice that it elides the comfort women issue in general, and it also elides American responsibility. And so that's the kind of geostrategic maneuvering behind the publication of this article at the current moment. So if it's not simply Japan's colonial semi-genocidal policy to blame because the U.S. did it too. And the South Korean government did it too. Like, it's bad, it's awful, we're sorry, but we're all sorry. And so as a way of, in essence, normalizing the issue and thus exonerating in a de facto way Japanese responsibility for this, you know, decades and decades and decades of mass 
murder, really. It's not simply sexual trafficking. As you said, these women had a higher death rate than frontline troops because of what they endured, because of what happened to them. And the, the right-wing pro-militarist governments in Japan, especially starting with Shinzo Abe, whose father was a, a war criminal, and Shinzo Abe always went to the cemetery to restore the honor of the war criminals. And now the U.S., because it's preparing for major power conflict with China, needs South Korea and Japan to get over the hump. And so you have the New York Times, the paper of record in, here in the capitalist USA, publicizing these terrible crimes committed by the U.S. government and South Korea towards Korean women in the southern part of Korea as part of a get ready for war plan. That's what you're saying in essence, correct? Exactly. The U.S. is preparing for war, encircling and escalating against China. And South Korea, which has the sixth most powerful military in the planet, and Japan, which has the fifth most powerful military in planet and soon to be the third largest military budget, are the key threat multiplication platforms in Northeast Asia. In particular, South Korea is very, very important because South Korea is six 100,000 troops armed to the teeth, highly trained, highly militarized, you know, highly equipped with lethal weaponry. And the U.S. has operational control over all of these troops and their weapons and their bases if they decide they need it. It has what is called wartime operational control, as well as what is called CODA, which is a kind of peacetime operational control. The South Koreans only really have symbolic control over their own military. And so you can see how the U.S. has this you know, moral hazard where it gets to use hundreds of thousands of regular troops along with 3.1 million reserve Korean troops for free. That's an extraordinary you know, force projection, threat multiplication platform that they have in Korea. And they need Korea and Japan to coordinate and to work together because you know, South Korea has the manpower and it has the bridgehead or the beachhead onto the Chinese continent. And then Japan has the hardware, the technology, and it has a string of islands along the Ryukyu or Okinawa Islands that go all the way within, you know, tens of miles of Taiwan Island, Taiwan province, which is the other place that they want to instigate or provoke a war. It's a kind of double envelopment, if you will. One of the things that we're clearly witnessing right now as part of U.S. imperial strategy is to use its so-called allies or proxies or puppets, call them what you will, to do the fighting for the U.S., to engage in proxy war. So the U.S. basically took control of Ukraine with the U.S.-backed coup d'etat in February 2014 began really in earnest military struggle in the eastern part of the country in the Donbass region. More than 10,000 Ukrainians died between 2014 when the coup happened and the beginning of the Russian invasion in Ukraine in 2022. And then now the U.S. is at war with Russia, but Ukrainians are dying. And so, you know, we had a demonstration on March 18th against the escalatory nature of U.S. war drive in, against Russia and China. And we did it on the 20th anniversary of the Iraq war. And during the Iraq war, 
the coalition that I helped lead, the Answer Coalition, we had demonstrations of hundreds of thousands of people month after month after month because U.S. forces were about to be sent, this was before the war, about to be sent to fight and die, kill and be killed in Iraq. And so we had this really good demonstration on the 20th anniversary, but it was several thousand people, not several hundred thousand people, because Americans are not dying. Ukrainians are dying. The U.S. is using another army to fight Russia. And it has a proxy puppet government, the Zelensky government, that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the United States and EU backing. And so even though, even though Ukraine's not a member of NATO, it's functioning as an extension of NATO, as an extension of a U.S. military alliance fighting against Russia. So anti-war sentiment is kind of tapped down. This is a deliberately chosen strategy because the U.S. is afraid of the Vietnam syndrome where millions of Americans went into the streets every day. They're afraid of the anti-war sentiment, the latent anti-war sentiment amongst the American people because it, it can roar back and become a destabilizer for the capitalist government. So they want proxies to fight. They want somebody else to do all the bleeding. And I'm just wondering, when you're talking about the Korean military being so powerful, really, and so many people under arms, a really modern military, if the U.S. goes to war in Asia, they prefer Koreans to do the fighting and dying. And maybe the Americans will provide intelligence. The American commanders will command. The U.S. will maintain control of command and control centers. What do you think? I mean, is the U.S. preparing to use Koreans? I mean, the U.S. used Koreans in Vietnam. Yes, the U.S. has always used Koreans. In the first fight with China, we have to understand the Korean War as a proxy war against China. The U.S. killed off, what, four million Koreans on the peninsula as they fought with China. And they've always used proxies and they've already been to war with China. So we're essentially, you know, turning a cycle and coming back to the same place where we were in 1950. But the Koreans have always been the first to go and the last to know. They sent 320,000 troops to fight for the U.S. in Vietnam, where they committed unspeakable atrocities which they still need to apologize and give reparations for, which they never have. But there were 320,000 South Korean troops, and they were the second largest military formation in Vietnam after the U.S. After 1972, there were more Koreans in Vietnam than there were Americans. They were the first to go in Afghanistan right after the U.S., within I think a month of the U.S. sending troops to Afghanistan, there were 500 Korean officers in Afghanistan, also part of the U.S. conflict. Anywhere the U.S. fights, the Koreans are the first to go. And they are, you know, kind of the perfect proxies because in this specific incident, in this specific area, they are literally under U.S. control. The U.S. has wartime operational control and CODA over the Korean troops. And therefore, they get to do whatever they want with them. The U.S. has always wanted to wage war on the cheap. As you point out, after Vietnam, you know, there was this understanding that we're only going to use volunteers. Volunteers were not working out as well as they wanted. So they shifted to drone warfare, electronic warfare. And now with the Ukraine war, 
using proxies or a complete proxy war. But what we can also note is that the proxies that they are preparing right now, for example, on Taiwan Island, which is a province of China, they're trying to stoke a separatist movement and they want to use the ROC military as a proxy war. Thousands of professional soldiers in the Taiwanese military are defecting. They're resigning from the military because they don't want to be used as proxies. They see what the U.S. is doing in Ukraine, in Bakhmut. And the same thing with the Koreans. The Koreans don't want war, and even the Japanese don't want war. There's a large poll show that you know the vast majority of the Japanese don't want to get directly involved in a U.S. war. Now, the U.S. has pressured Japan to change its peacetime constitution so that it can go to war anytime the U.S. goes to war and to provide troops anywhere the U.S. is fighting. But the Japanese population themselves, you know, the vast majority say they want nothing of this. One of the principal other tools used by U.S. empire is that maps out its plans for intervention, occupation, war, using war, all kinds of war tactics, is to demonize the target, really demonize the target. So the American people know that if you come out and you're, say, against the bombing of Yugoslavia, that means you're probably an apologist for Milosevic, the leader of Yugoslavia. Or if you were against the war in Iraq, are you an apologist for Saddam Hussein? You know, like this is this basic tone and tenor of the of the media demonization. If you are against the war in Afghanistan, does that mean you're for the Taliban? Because aren't the Taliban the worst? I mean, this is the tried and true tactic. I went to North Korea multiple times, the first time in 1989, and I was amazed at how well the country seemed to be doing economically. The people were confident, they were walking, including young kids walking by themselves in the street. They had a beautiful subway in Pyongyang. The city itself, which had been destroyed, completely destroyed. I mean, literally, literally destroyed during the bombing, the carpet bombing by the US between 1950 and 53. Pyongyang is a beautiful city. I was really stunned by how well it was doing. The next times I went was in 2001, and it was very difficult. The caloric intake of the people had dropped dramatically. There was famine. And while the North Korean economy was thriving, that was during the time when there was a socialist camp and U.S. sanctions weren't as impactful. The U.S. demonized North Korea for one thing, but then in 2001, when its people literally couldn't eat, the U.S. said, see, the North Koreans are starving their own people. Like there's one reason or another we're supposed to hate North Korea, fear North Korea, and basically be ignorant about North Korea. And then after 2013, on the 60th anniversary of the signing of the armistice that brought the military conflict in the Korean War to an end, I came again because there was the beginning of talk about maybe there would be normalization of relations with North Korea. And we started, I started, along with other people in the Answer Coalition, sending delegations of people who could go to North Korea as tourists. So we set up this little people-to-people -people exchange. People, Americans were starting, people from all walks of life, not just from the left. We were starting to send folks to North Korea. We said, Go to North Korea, make your own, you know, judgment about what it's like. And, you know, of course, a lot of Europeans were going to North Korea at that time as tourists. 
And then the U.S. government made it illegal for the people in the United States to even go to North Korea. So if you go to North Korea right now, you're breaking the U.S. law because they don't want people to know anything about North Korea. So we're only getting this demonized version of North Korea. And again, if you say anything contrary, you're considered an out and out, just an apologist for the government in Pyongyang. Let's talk about this issue, KJ, because the demonization of North Korea is also a principal part of the information war for the American people, but it was also a principal part of the information war for the occupied parts of the Korean Peninsula, meaning the people in South Korea, where if you even said a word nice about North Korea or said you think there should be better relations, you went to prison for a long time, 10 years. And most of the people I talked to who got out of prison after those long prison sentences, they had been routinely tortured. Anyway, let's talk about this. Yes. So, you know, the demonization of North Korea has been off the charts for decades. It's just extraordinary. It's extraordinary, you know, information warfare. And here in the West, those people who only see mainstream media, they're so propagandized that they have no conception of what the truth actually is. The truth is that North Korea was a successful and prosperous state, at least until the 1980s. As I said, until 1978, it was richer, more developed than South Korea. And then what happened after the fall of the Soviet Union was they were subject to sanctions. The U.S. had a collapsist doctrine around North Korea. Essentially, we can destroy this country, which fought against us and handed us our greatest military defeats at the time. We can punish this country by sanctioning it to death. It will eventually collapse. And they were almost successful because North Korea has only, only 15% of North Korea uh, has arable land. The rest is rocky and mountainous. And so this requires large amounts of petrochemical fertilizer in order to provide food for its country. And when those petrochemical imports were no longer possible, then they went into what was called the arduous march, which was just a horrific you know, reduction in living standards, in caloric intake, etc. And this was a very deliberate tactic on the part of the United States. To add to that, the U.S. would always conduct these huge military exercises during planting season and during harvesting season. That is, all the troops actually do quite a lot of the farming labor had to be taken away from their farming duties and to man the stations for potential imminent war. And so constantly creating this threat that creates damage and food insecurity, and then criticizing North Korea for not being able to feed its people. You know, that's the level of planned hypocrisy and violence, you know, structural violence that they were forcing onto North Korea. But nevertheless, the North Koreans are extraordinarily resourceful and they managed, they got through this period, and now they are doing okay. They're still one of the poorest countries on the planet in terms of GDP, but in terms of life expectancy, which I consider to be the most single most important index of the development of a country, they punch a hundred rankings above their weight. That is to say, 
their extremely poor GDP, but in terms of life expectancy, they are close to near middle income countries. They're, for example, their life expectancy is longer than the Philippines. So all of this is to say that in order to prevent the truth from coming out about North Korea, so then you have to prevent people from visiting it. You want to, you know, keep this propaganda mill going. And of course, North Korean defectors are always incentivized to tell lies. Some of the most extraordinary, absurd lies. Pagyan Mi is one of the key propagators of these lies. And if you listen and think just for a moment, you realize that they're absolutely unthinkably absurd. She's essentially pulling a Borat on the U.S. population. And she also says that Columbia University is actually more oppressive than North Korea. So I think that gives you a sense of you know, how this is going for. But South Korea still has these national security laws, and they prevent any North Korean or even any South Korean from saying anything positive about North Korea. You can go to prison. Article 7 says you can go to prison for years simply for you know, saying anything that sympathizes with North Korea. And so it's a very, very toxic brew. But this complete total demonization, I characterize it as the pre-kinetic dimension or the subkinetic dimension of war. That is, it's information warfare to prepare for military escalation in preparation for actual kinetic war, to legitimize kinetic war. And North Korea, in this sense, we have to understand this as a stalking horse for China. North Korea is not any kind of threat. First, they have never threatened or invaded other foreign countries. But secondly, the North Korean military budget is $4 billion. That's less than the New York City Police Department budget. So they certainly don't constitute any kind of threat. But at the same time, there's this constant threat inflation and this constant demonization of North Korea, because then that justifies U.S. military presence and U.S. military escalation. And then all of this is a ruse in order to encircle and escalate against China. Two very concrete examples, the THAAD missile system. They say it's to defend against North Korean missiles. Absurd. The THAAD shoots missiles that go up into the exosphere and come down. North Korea is less than a taxi cab drive away from the city. There's no way or no reason for them to lob missiles into the exosphere so they can be shot down at 150 kilometers in the atmosphere. The THAAD missile system is directed against China, and essentially it has radar that renders the Chinese continent transparent for about two to 3,000 kilometers. Another example is the Japanese recently said that they put Patriot missile batteries on Yonaguni Island of the Ryukyu Island chain in order to protect against North Korean missiles. Once again, absurd. North Korea is a thousand miles away from Yonaguni Island, and the Patriot missiles have a range of 40 miles. But Yonaguni Island is 40 miles away from Taiwan province. And that's where they're really directed for. That is to say, they're a force projection platform to wage war against China over Taiwan when Taiwan becomes weaponized as a kamikaze state against China. And as even as we speak right now, the US is strapping the suicide vest onto the people of Taiwan. Indeed. 
you know, the history here is very, very important because otherwise people are vulnerable to being taken in by the way the propaganda machine, the information war is conducted. And, you know, at the end of World War II, when Americans were told their primary enemy was the Japanese, there was racist caricaturing of the Japanese people. Of course, there was concentration camps where Japanese Americans were put into basically prison camps, concentration camps. So Japan was the mortal enemy. And so the U.S. destroys Japan, both with the conventional bombings, carpet bombing of Japan before the dropping of the atomic bombs in August 1945 in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then a week later, August 15th, the Japanese surrender. And the U.S. had insisted that they surrender unconditionally, meaning the U.S. will impose all of the post-war conditions on Japan. One of those conditions was that the Japanese oppressors of Korean people remain in place, not that they leave, not that they exit Korea so that the Korean people can breathe, so that the Korean people can live. No, the U.S. said you must stay in South Korea until the U.S. Navy and Air Force arrive, and then we'll take over. So on September 8th or 9th, 1945, about a month after Hiroshima, about three weeks after the surrender, the unconditional surrender of Japan to the U.S., August 15th, 1945, the American forces occupy South Korea, and then the U.S. also occupies Japan. So the U.S. has bases in Okinawa and 11 different places in Japan. It had military bases, the biggest military bases in the Philippines, Clark Air Base, a huge naval base, and then all of South Korea becomes a U.S. military base. And, you know, when you think about it like that, that the U.S. has this permanent, almost century long now, it's, we're going on 80 years of these military occupations. They're not leaving. They're not there for the protection of the, the people in the host country. It makes all of those people very vulnerable to the next war, and the next war is being planned. And if you counterpose that, KJ, to what would happen if, say, the Korean people, unified, were free of U.S. or any foreign military occupation, could be one people once again, one nation. Korea really would be a powerhouse nation. And the, the impact on the U.S. empire or Japanese plans would be really also very impacted because a reunified Korea would be a Korea that was for peace, unless it was reunified the way, you know, Germany was reunified when the U.S. basically took over East Germany and incorporated it into NATO. But if it was an independent, unified country, Korea would be a powerhouse. The U.S. doesn't want Korea to be a sovereign place. The U.S. doesn't want the Korean people to be free because the U.S. actually fears a free Korea. Anyway, I'll give you the last word. Correct. The U.S. does not want a free Korea. It has never wanted a sovereign free Korea. They, have, they did everything humanly possible to prevent the quote unquote democratic transition. They said, you know, Korea is not set for democracy. They wanted Korea as a military dictatorship and they were pulled in dragging and screaming into this because the South Koreans fought 
the military dictatorships, you know, you know, with uh, everything they had and eventually brought it down. But you're absolutely correct. If South Korea were sovereign, then it would seek unification with North Korea. Remember, one out of three, one out of four people in South Korea still have family in North Korea. For 1400 years, you know, they were a single nation unified. And so this colonization and this split was imposed by the United States after 1945. Now, the key thing to understand about the history was after Japan surrendered, the South Koreans and the North Koreans, all the Koreans together came together and they built a Korean Republic. This was called the Korean People's Republic, the KPR. And this was put together from thousands of you know, workers' collectives. It was essentially an indigenous socialist state. The U.S. did polls at the time. They showed that the mass, the vast majority of Koreans wanted a socialist state. They wanted a nationalist, independent socialist state. And this was the Korean People's Republic. What the U.S. did when it arrived with the military was that it banned the Korean People's Republic, made it illegal. All the politicians of the KPR, it made them illegal. It made all the independence fighters, all the anti-colonial, all the anti-imperial fighters, all the union organizers, all the peasant organizers, it made them all illegal. And that it started a process of politicide, very, very similar to what we saw in Indonesia in 1964 to 1966. Essentially, they genocided all the people who wanted independence and were fighting against colonialism, the reimposition of colonialism. And this resulted in what we call the Porto League massacres. And this was, you know, a massacre of 300,000 to up to 1.2 million people that eventually culminated in the Korean War. But the politicide was happening long before the war actually broke out. So, all of this is to say that South Korea has, since 1945, it has always been a U.S. vassal. You're absolutely correct that the U.S. prevented the Japanese from leaving. And then eventually, as the Japanese transitioned out, the United States put the South Korean collaborator class, the ones who had collaborated with Japan, back into power. If you can imagine that, you know, France was liberated and the Allies put the Vichy government back into power. This mm. is what happened in South Korea. And then this South Korean quisling government, you know, a string of dictators essentially did U.S. bidding up to the 1990s. And currently, you know, in the current moment, they've fallen right back in line. And all of this has to do with the fact that the U.S sees South Korea as this extraordinarily important geostrategic outpost. It is literally the ramp, the bridgehead, the beachhead onto the Asian continent. And for that, it can never allow peace and it can never allow unification. So for in order for South Korea to have peace, which the US you know, should have negotiated in 1953 after the armistice they refused to, in order for South Korea to have peace, in order for South Korea to be unified, first it has to decolonize. It has to wrest back operational control over its own military, and then it has to have U.S. troops leave. And then once that happened, Korea can reunify. And once it does reunify, 
then it will become, you know, a sovereign state unto itself. But the other thing that it will happen is that it will become the northeastern terminus of the Belt and Road, and it will integrate into this large developmental process that is happening all across the global south, where we build out a multipolar, pluripolar, multilateral system built on win-win development and you know, mutual support and trade. This is what the U.S. cannot allow happen. And this is why they adamantly oppose not only reunification or peace, but why they are opposed to even the smallest gestures such as people trying to cross the DMZ or trying to build, you know, a railway towards North Korea. The U.S. has adamantly opposed every single action. All right. We're going to leave it right there, KJ. You know, in 1950, Korea became the center of the global struggle, really the start of the military-industrial complex, really emblematic of the Cold War, so-called Cold War. It wasn't cold for Koreans wasn't cold for the Vietnamese. But here we are in 2023, and I think Korea is right at the very, very center again, which is why I think it's so important that people become informed, learn about it, and also follow your writings. I know you write for Counterpunch, you write for Dissident Voice. KJ, real quick, how can people learn more about your work? You're a prolific writer and author and journalist. Well, it's actually becoming very, very hard to find my work because all my work is being shadow banned. So you have to kind of look for me. You have to use my name, KJ. No, I suggest using other web search engines or complementing your web search other than Google because Google is clearly shadow banning my work. But go on to MR Online, go on to LA Progressive, go on to Black Agenda Report, Counterpunch, Dissident Voice. You know, I speak and present regularly on there, but you also have to look for it. You know, there's a systemic process of erasure that is happening, which is part of the information warfare. You know, they want to mystify you, they want to propagandize you, and they want to erase anybody and anyone who is saying something which goes against the propaganda line that they're trying to feed you. KJ No, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.